folks, let's get started. Welcome to SNED. Uh, my name is Karen Dubinsky. I work on SNED with Scott Rutherford, who can't be here, and Shannon Brown, who is here. Um, welcome. Shannon has a, um, a sign-up sheet for those of you who are new to this uh, seminar series. We meet every, almost every, not every, almost every Thursday, always at this time. Um, if you want notices about future talks, please, by all means, sign up. Next week, we're going to hear, at this time, we're going to hear from Professor Polgek uh, Forkert, who's a, uh, actually, I think she's an emeritus professor, retired professor, I believe in the anatomy department, and she's going to talk about a study she did about uh, clean water activist campaign, um, actually, that took place not too far away uh, from Kingston a few years ago, something she's written a book about. So she's, uh, she's going to be an interesting person, I think, to, to hear from. Today we have Professor Riza Hasmat, who's come to us from the University of Alberta. Um, he's going to talk about Chinese NGOs. I'm really glad to see a good turnout for this. It's a topic that I was really, I am really interested in, know virtually nothing about. I don't think it's a well-known topic um, in, in general terms. And when I saw, uh, we were just speaking, when I saw recently, damn, this is the Thursday before Thanksgiving. It's always mm -hmm. notoriously a, a tough time slot for uh, for, for everybody in, in universities. So that makes me really pleased to see a really decent, very decent turnout uh, for what's, I think, going to be a super interesting talk. I also found out that Professor Hasmath has done, did his undergrad here at Queen's some years ago in philosophy. So let me say welcome back. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for that introduction. It's uh, been two and a half decades since I've been back to Queen's and uh, as you're saying, not much has changed in certain ways, so, especially in the classrooms here where I did a lot of my uh, courses. Um, and also thank you guys for coming out. Uh, I know the long weekend's coming up, so um, I'm really appreciative of this. Um, so this talk is really interesting for me because it's uh, a culmination of about a decade and a half worth of work. Uh, so at the end of the presentation, I'll show you some of the recent studies we've done on this. Um, but we were very lucky, I was very lucky when I was doing my PhD, um, that uh, NGOs, at least in a contemporary sense, started to pop up in China. It was like ground zero. So you're able to actually study, um, you know, from, from organizational birth to its maturation and to, and to see how the strategies they've used to navigate uh, a different sort of uh, political system. Uh, so we've been tracking uh, the same NGOs for, for, as I said, about 15, 16 years now. And uh, this is a sort of a talk to, to give you a sort of a general overview of, of some of the uh, lessons we've learned, some of the things we've observed, um, stemming from some of the studies we've done as well. Um, so in, interestingly enough, uh, I'm going to start off with, uh, um, uh, with this first statement. Uh, there is generally a lack of meaningful there's generally a lack of meaningful interactions between Chinese NGOs and the state. Now, if you're not familiar with authoritarian regimes, you might think, well, this is kind of weird. Like, why would I, why would I mention that? Uh, if, we, if it was our own jurisdiction, um, we often question whether or not NGOs should interact with the state, should they work in partnership with the state. Um, generally speaking, in Western political philosophies, uh, there's a state, there's market, there's civil society, they're separate from each other, um, and they kind of check each other, right? In other sorts of regimes, so in China, for instance, um, you find that the state is quite over, uh, plays a strong role in the market, and it also plays a very strong role in self-society. So it's a very different kind of construct, so to speak. So that's why our first observation is, well, 
Interestingly enough, there should be more meaningful interaction between Johnny's NGOs and the state as an adaptive strategy to be effective because you need to work within the state apparatus to actually accomplish certain goals. Uh, so one of the first things we, we kind of try to observe is looking at state NGO interactions. Um, why, why are we seeing so few little interactions? And here was the puzzle, so to speak. Um, on the one hand, we see that uh, the state has experienced a strain on its finances, right? So the state's retreating from social welfare provisions. Then you have NGOs who have the capacity to be alternative social welfare uh, sort of uh, providers. Well, you can see the sort of paradox now, right? On the one hand, you have one party that's withdrawing from social welfare. On the other hand, you have another party who can actually be a gap filler, so to speak. Why is your little collaboration between both? Um, and it kind of would make sense that they would collaborate because you have one who can actually fill that sort of vacuum. And so um, when, we, when we try to figure this out, the explanations behind why there's such a, a low sort of collaboration uh, between state and NGO, uh, the first thing in the literature was, well, as I mentioned, the state's domination. Um, so effectively, NGOs will not interact or seldomly will they interact with the state because the state was so dominant. It, was, it, was so, it had such a strong um, sort of uh, presence that NGOs may fear interacting with them. So in the literature during that period where we were doing these works, um, that was one of the prevailing sort of theories. Another sort of theory, and this comes from management studies, organizational differences. So for instance, um, if one organization from one sector, well, let me put it to you this way. If the university was to interact with, uh, say, private enterprises, there might be some difficulties um, because of organizational differences. The organizational culture might be different, the language in which they speak might be different, the structure of the organization might be different. So it makes it very difficult for a university and, and, and it's often a, a private entity to interact because of those organizational differences. The same can be held true for NGOs and the state. So in the management, boring from management literature, we can suggest, well, maybe they didn't interact because they had lacked um, they had varying sort of organizational differences, varying organizational culture, varying organizational structures. So it's like they're talking at each other instead of working with each other. So these were very high level kinds of explanations, right? You have the dominant state, the big bad state, and then you have this organizational variances between the state and the NGO. Now what was really interesting for us, we, we, we kind of went back to first principles. So, uh, we, we started interviewing NGOs, we started interviewing government officials, and at the very early days, mind you, uh, what we found was that NGOs and the state don't actually know much about each other. It was, it was the simplest thing, and, and it, it was really interesting because we would interview government officials, and we started talking about social organizations, NGOs, and they looked at us very funny. It's like, are we, is my Chinese bad? Am I saying the wrong word? Huh? Um, they just simply didn't understand what is this NGO you talk about, right? And so we had to go back. I had to like abandon my questions and say, okay, maybe they don't actually meaningfully understand what an NGO is. And conversely, among NGOs, they didn't actually know what governments can do or what local governments or the central government can do uh, to help them and to aid in their sort of uh, mandate, so to speak. So effectively, the third reason, which seems very simplistic, but it was, it was, it was, it was so profound, was the fact that they had little intimate awareness of each other. 
So this is, this is from year zero, so to, let's just say the beginning part of when the NGOs were starting to pop up in the mainland. Now I'm gonna come back to that in a moment, wh why that's important. Um, so another sort of maxim from our studies we found is uh, the benefits often outweigh the risks for most NGOs to collaborate with the state. And it's generally in the interests of many NGOs, sector dependent of course, to interact with the state. Now again, remember, it's a different type of institutional environment in China, where the state plays a strong role in the market and plays a strong role in, uh, in civil society. And so if you were to negotiate any changes or negotiate any policy shifts or social service deliveries, it's in your interest, so to speak, to interact with the state. Now there's a few caveats here, and I always get these questions. What about legal rights-based NGOs where, who are advocacy-oriented? Why would they want to interact with the state where the state's probably going to infringe upon them? Now, 85% of NGOs in China are actually uh, social welfare oriented. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start scoping what I'm talking about for a moment here. I'm gonna be looking at the social welfare oriented NGOs because legal rights based NGOs would have very different strategies. And some, in fact, most would not actually interact as meaningfully with the state as possible, uh, even though it might be a mistake in some, in some regards. But uh, I'm gonna focus on the 85% of social welfare-oriented NGOs. I'm gonna to suggest to you that the benefits often outweigh the risks uh, for those social welfare-oriented NGOs to interact with the state. So I'm gonna tell you a few, a few sort of words about the benefits and the risks. Um, well, you know, what powers do NGOs have? You know, you can articulate that the standard NGO, irrespective if it's China, uh, anywhere in the globe, um, an NGO has uh, material resources, so it has finances, right? It has symbolic and interpretive capital. So it's able to say, for instance, uh, by virtue of uh, assenting to X statement, it has credibility. It can interpret social facts, so to speak. Um, it has uh, uh, geographical resources. So for instance, if the NGO is localized, if it's regionalized, if it's national, if it's global, it's a different type of resource that it has. Um, for the most part, until just very recent, in fact, it's only the last two years, uh, they changed the NGO laws. If you were an NGO in China, you can only work in one location, so in one local geography, so in a municipality or a small little region, locality within the city or, or town, uh, and you can only work in one issue area. So you weren't able to scale up. Um, so at the beginning, uh, we thought, well, hold on. Um, what can the NGO do? What can the NGO offer to the government? And what we found was um, that it was very effective when NGOs actually illustrated they had material resources to um, you know, supplement social welfare provisions. It was like a eureka moment for policymakers or officials, so to speak. And the reason why was, as I said, the state was retreating from social welfare provisions. You have these NGOs who have the uh, material capitals to actually you know, uh, plug in into those areas. Um, and if they can do that, and the policy official or, 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 the, or the government official gets the credit, it's a win-win situation, right? So government officials, um, they, their promotions were based on how well they perform, obviously. And what they found was, if they were able to engage with the NGO who provides part of these services, and the citizenry can't really differentiate between an NGO and, and a government, and so, it was, most of the, uh, the credit went to the government official. So in, in other words, if the, if the NGO wanted to 
to collaborate with the state, it can market uh, in a much more pronounced fashion its material resources. And so that was one of the sort of, uh, um, uh, sort of strategies we utilized uh, by NGOs to, 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 to foster collaboration. Now, there's a few other caveats here. Um, whether it's a government, whether it's an NGOs, even if it's a private organization, generally speaking, they're risk adverse. Generally, it's one of these maxims we find. NGOs in China, never, um, not with, well, withstanding, is also risk adverse. So is the government there. You found there's a greater chance to have collaboration between the state and the NGO when they knew about each other, when they saw there's a track record. Now, this becomes problematic. The average NGO does not last more than two years in China. In fact, that's in line with most NGOs globally. Um, the average NGO is small. The average NGO has one really passionate co-founder, and if you're very lucky, you might have one or two permanent staff or, or, or part-time staff. And if you're even more so lucky, you might have some volunteers. I'll talk about those kinds of strategies later on as well. And what we found was um, that because they, 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 I mean, we call them defunct, because they, they fail eventually after two years, there isn't a great track record. And so how can the government uh, trust the NGO if they doesn't actually have that track record? So that was quite problematic. So the first, I say, decade and a bit, we, we seldom saw a lot of collaboration between the NGOs and the state, because simply put, there wasn't a track record of, of and there wasn't that sort of ability to create trust, the requisite trust, to engage in a mutual collaboration. Um, now, some of the risks. Few things. Uh, many local NGOs said, if we collaborate with the state, they're gonna steal our ideas. Um, and it actually did occur. It occurred many, many times where the uh, government, the local government, would take the ideas and uh, make it their own, um, or the central government would take the ideas and then scale it up. Now, as I said, all organizations want to, well, I didn't say, all organizations want to survive. That's another sort of maxim. So NGOs withstanding do want to survive. So if they find that they collaborate with the state and then they steal their ideas or they absorb them or they poach the ideas and crowd out the NGO, so to speak, um, their survival is at risk. So these are some of the attendant fears that we saw. Um, um, now, the, the sort of benefits and risks when we were doing this sort of analysis, the last sort of worthwhile um, point to mention were these hidden rules. Um, so, for instance, we did one study looking at religious NGOs. And what was quite interesting was um, the state would, would be strategically ignorant of these religious NGOs. They allowed them to operate. They knew they were there. Um, in fact, some actually attended and, and some participated, government officials, that is. But um, they, they, they would only trust them if they knew the hidden rules for success. Namely, I'll give you an example. Um, so during field work visit during Obama's time for this religious NGO study, uh, when Obama came to China, all the religious NGOs shut down in that particular areas. No one told them to. No one, seriously, no one ever told them to. They just kind of knew, okay, let's not, let's not take an unnecessary risk. So don't overtly embarrass the government, so to speak, right? So there were these hidden rules. And these hidden rules, um, over time, when, when, when our NGOs, so religious NGOs, showed they understood the hidden rules, you find that local officials are more likely to trust them. And, and, and fast forward to present day, they actually work with them hand in hand. So it's kind of interesting to see how that collaboration uh, uh, it, 
with, with, with the benefits and risks uh, when you do that sort of assessment, um, for the most part, I would suggest again that uh, it, 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 the, the benefits outweigh the risks. Okay, now, then we start thinking about other things, which, are, which is, comes as a corollary of what I was suggesting. That is, there's a steady professionalization project occurring among Chinese NGOs. This is a positive because it creates greater predictability. What I mean by that is this. For the first decade and a bit, it was very inconsistent, the practices of Chinese NGOs. So for instance, there's seldom a closeout report, seldom was there reporting activities, yeah. board of directors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Certain kinds of organizational characteristics and, and behaviors that can uh, um, suggest a professionalization. Why professionalization is important, again, is because professionalization allows set practices and allows the state to, to see predictability in its activities. So the state, once it sees NGOs have become professionalized, uh, is more likely to engage with them. It's more likely to give them uh, the space to operate, so to speak. So again, I have to remind you, because it's like tra tra transferring yourself to a different world there. Remember, the state plays a strong role in everything, right? So it can tacitly or overtly provide sanctioning uh, towards the activities of an organization. Uh, overt sanctioning, in one of our papers we talked about, uh, that is, there, it creates rules and regulations of how an organization should behave. Tacit sanctioning is it's that sort of strategic ignorance. It says you can do whatever you like within that space, just don't embarrass us, and, uh, and, and don't counteract our, our sort of main policies. So these hidden rules, so to speak. Um, so by virtue of trusting the NGO, by virtue of having this professionalized project, you were, you're actually able to, to have predictability, and you find that the state's more likely to work with you and to allow you to, to do your work. Now, Again, as I mentioned, this is difficult, especially when most Chinese NGOs are small um, and their lifespan is less than two years. You really can't professionalize. Um, and so we did another study trying to figure out the, uh, um, uh, the sort of um, um, demographics, the sort of characteristics of the populations, of the workforce in NGOs. The average NGO is the first time your founder has actually ever worked in an NGO and it's probably the last time a founder is gonna work with an NGO. The average worker is the first time they ever work for an NGO, and it's most likely the last time they work for an NGO. Similarly for volunteers, we found volunteers is the first time they've ever volunteered for an NGO, and they would move to government or they would move to private enterprises. In other words, it's the last time they work for an NGO. It's really difficult to foster a professionalized project when that's the reality, because you don't have long-term NGO workers akin to maybe other jurisdictions. Um, and so because individuals have little to no prior NGO experience, because there is a low supply of, of available experienced skill NGO staff, um, professionalization was quite slow. And so you found that the state uh, had difficulties at the local level actually interacting and engaging with NGOs. Because again, they didn't, they didn't really know much about what an NGO is. I mean, we went from knowing nothing about an NGO, I mean, even talking about the word and the concept, to, okay, they exist, we can use their material resources, perhaps, to, well, can we really trust them? And it, again, this is important, because it kind of explains the new laws. Because as, as preview, and I'm gonna mention in a moment, um, the new laws actually try to create a professional association for NGOs, which hyper-professionalizes the sector effectively. 
So there are some positives, there's some negatives of course, but there are some positives to the uh, new laws. And so, as I mentioned here, once Chinese NGOs have developed a mature professionalized project, there would be greater predictability, and it allows not only the state but funders to be more likely to, to, to actually uh, support their projects, so to speak. Because it's not only the interactions with government, it's also funders. Philanthropy, especially in China, has increased dramatically. And it's individual and corporate philanthropy has increased dramatically. And even for them, they want to fund NGOs that they know there's a track record, that they're able to see that there's consistent predictability. Um, so again, there's this idea that professionalization is necessary. There has to be that minimal level of trust in order to engage uh, with the NGO. Okay, another sort of maxim that we've noticed is, and, and this can be a bit frustrating for, for those of you who are analyzing China, um, China is not this one monolithic. It, it, it's, in many ways, I have often described it as a multiple Chinas. There's numerous Chinas, different levels of development, different, it's different countries, basically, in one monolithic China. So it should not be surprising then to see that there's sub-national variations amongst NGOs. Um, and what I mean by that is this. So we did a, we try to figure out the sort of resources that NGOs have. Now these are very crude kind of, uh, um, and, and very, uh, well, very crude way of, of saying various strategies. Um, in the paper, we, we talk about that as well um, in a much more nuanced fashion. But for our purposes, I would suggest uh, there's a donor dependency strategy. And we found Beijing and Shanghai-based NGOs generally had, uh, were able to tap into those kinds of resources. In, in other words, corporate resources or international foundations. And they're able to actually get their funding that way. So that was, that was the sort of, uh, uh, sort of regional variation there, um, particularly in those tier one cities. Um, there's a state dependency strategy. We found that Kuming NGOs were more likely to receive funding and had interactions with a local state. And what was really interesting is when those NGOs developed a method for solving a, a problem, instead of implementing it on its own, it allowed the state's partner to take the idea and implement it. So it's a very different strategy than, say, in Beijing and Shanghai. Again, multiple Chinas. Um, it's a volunteer dependency strategy. It was a way to negotiate China's uh, relatively unfriendly resource landscape. That's a nice diplomatic way of saying uh, it was a great way in which you can scale up very quickly and scale down very quickly if need be, depending on the, on the environment at, of the day. So effectively, it allowed NGO, uh, Nanjing NGOs to access enormous human power um, at little to no cost. And um, it was uh, it's interesting, many Nanjing NGOs were claiming we're just clubs. Uh, and so it was another sort of, uh, uh, these sort of hidden rules for success I'm talking about. Again, at this localized regional variation. Okay, now coming to present day, um, you know, we have two new laws in China. It's a charity law and an international foreign NGO law. Um, the charity law, and this was really interesting because we, we, we saw more and more, around two to, well, I would say the last five years or so, the last two to five years, if you look at Russia, if you look at Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, if we look at some Middle Eastern states, they've all passed new NGO laws and it's become much more regulatory in, in so far that uh, they are trying to curb foreign influence. So <laughs> as, as a quick story, we, we were looking at uh, Chinese NGOs in Ethiopia. So we were in Addis Ababa for some time. And uh, what was interesting, when we, were, when we were talking to government officials in Ethiopia, they would say, well, we're gonna pass these new stringent laws 
uh, for NGOs because, I mean, in effect, in other words, we were suggesting we came into power because Western NGOs helped us. Now we're kind of wary that they might actually oust us. So we've got to be very careful about uh, um, these NGOs. We've got to really you know, regulate them. And so interestingly enough, we found that uh, the charity law was a way to truly regulate foreign influences in many ways. Both laws, the, 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 the charity law and the, uh, the foreign NGO law. Now, what's really interesting, and there are positives to this, because uh, it's, it's had really bad headlines. It's, uh, even universities have been uh, very wary uh, with the charity laws, because it means that maybe some university activities can occur in China, or foundations cannot operate in China um, because of some of the rules. Um, effectively, what the charity law has done is this. You can directly register with the Ministry of Civil Affairs, and it eliminates the dual management system. So previously, if you're an NGO, you would register with the Ministry of Civil Affairs, and you need, to measure, you need to also register with a local entity. And that way, you ensure there's not duplication. So remember what I mentioned, if you're an NGO in China, traditionally speaking, so we're, la we're talking about the last decade and a bit, you would work in one issue area in one locale. And the registration kind of drove that. The regulations drove that. They've eliminated that. Now, what are the attendant consequences of that? Well, that means Chinese NGOs can now scale up. They can increase their geographical power. Um, and what we've seen is that environmental NGOs in particular have done that. They've done it so successfully that they've scaled up nationally. Now they're going overseas, which is kind of interesting. Um, and that'll be my next, two, in two slides from now, I'll talk about the internationalization. And I think that's really neat to see what's going on there. But the charity laws is, is creating this. It's creating this sort of uh, environment in which NGOs can actually scale up. Atten what the attendant consequence, of course, is that it is going to crowd out smaller NGOs. So the, the larger NGOs are gonna prevail, um, and they're gonna become larger and larger, and the smaller ones are gonna get crowded out, because they're no longer protected by those kinds of regulations, which privilege one issue area in one locale. Um, and as I'll mention here in the, in the points here, is that it's also privileged uh, um, uh, charitable organizations uh, who are able to have public fundraising status, so gongos. Uh, Congos are government-operated, non-governmental organizations. Uh, it's an, it, is, it, is, uh, it took me and some of my colleagues, we, we, we spent a decade trying to figure out what effectively is it, I mean, we went crazy with this. We started writing a concept paper, which finally got published this year, trying to figure out what exactly is a gongo. <laughs> um, because how do you differentiate a gongo from a songo, state-organized, party organized, Pongo to, to Kwongo, and we just had so many actions, we're like, oh boy. I mean, we were getting confused. Um, what's also interesting here is that uh, for the charity laws, it, it privileges uh, gongos in particular because they can raise more money. And they're, of course, more trusted by the government because they're not necessarily a government arm, but they are government funded partially and they have closer relationships with the government. You gotta read the paper. We, we, we went at length to try and, and figure out what a gongo really is. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, the charity law, of course, also crowds out the smaller NGOs um, because the level of reporting is necessary. Most small NGOs don't have the capacity to do that. So again, it per, uh, large NGOs prevail, which might be a plus for the state because it's larger the NGO, the greater track record that large NGO has, the more predictable it is, the more they can trust them effectively. The foreign NGO laws have made it difficult for international organizations and the governments to directly support Chinese NGOs' activities. 
In other words, uh, it's trying to curb, I guess political scientists will look at it as principal agent interactions. It's like my Ethiopia example I was giving. Um, here, the principal might be the state, the agent is the NGO. So my first job was working at USAID and I, uh, I was in charge of funding or, or, or uh, funding certain NGOs in Hungary. I was on the Hungary desk. Effectively, the idea there was, was to fund NGOs in Hungary that, that had um, um, good governance, democracy, democratic values, uh, transparency and accountability mechanisms that kind of mirror the sort of uh, uh, characteristics that uh, the US has, so to speak. So there the principal is the US government, the agent is the NGO. That way you can actually um, uh, you know, influence another society through the NGO, effectively. And so what the foreign NGO laws are designed to a great extent is to try and curtail that, right? To its extreme thing of the Ethiopia example I was talking about a moment ago. So to legally operate in China, an international NGO must establish a permanent representative office registered in China that is approved by a government affiliated sponsor or obtain a temporary activity permit on an ad hoc basis via its government affiliated sponsor and public security bureau. INGOs cannot conduct fundraising activities or accept donations. Um, in previous versions of the law, it's stated that uh, you must employ the majority of local Chinese workers instead of foreign ones. Um, they've kind of removed that verbatim, but it's still kind of practice, so to speak, in order to actually get uh, uh, um, registered as such. So effectively, the foreign NGO law is trying to curtail any foreign influences in China. And again, this is not only in China, this is occurring in many jurisdictions globally. Now onto our favorite uh, acronym, the Gongo. Um, so Chinese Gongos are growing in power and influence, not only domestically, but internationally. Now, this is not geared towards this, but it's geared towards diplomats who kind of refuse to actually talk to Gongos. It is in their interest to engage with them. It was always interesting, so if I'm in Beijing, we would, we would organize with NGOs, we will talk to NGOs and so forth, and government officials will be there as well, but they never interacted with gongos. They're like, well, that's the state. But if gongos are now the heir to the state, and if gongos are now going global and are influencing, it kind of makes sense that you want to at least interact with them. So hence, that's why I had that, that, that line um, geared towards uh, that sort of cohort. It's in your interest to engage with them. Now here, um, here's that chart very quickly that stems from that paper that got published this year I was talking about. Trying to differentiate between the, the Chinese gongo and the NGO. Um, you can see the variances between material power, symbolic and interpretive power, geographical power, and political standpoints. Um, the quickest way to actually to, 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 to see differentiations between the Chinese gongo and the NGO is, well, the gongo is government sponsored. The NGO is donors, either public or private, or fundraising. Uh, statements, actions, and interpretations are seen as legitimate by the public. Uh, Dentitist-oriented NGOs are those uh, uh, who don't accept money from the state. Um, for Gongo, statements, actions, and interpretations can be viewed as compromised by the public. They both have the same geographical power. Um, political standpoints, it might reflect the values of the individual NGO. For a Gongo, it might reflect government values and beliefs. Why this is so interesting to us, um, well, let me show you one quick chart um, and, and then I'll, I'll explain why this is so important for us to understand from an international development and international affairs perspective. Um, here we see the different strategies for execution in terms of setting the agenda, putting issue on the policy table, affecting negotiations, assisting in the creation of agreements, conferring legitimacy on issues, making solutions and agreements work. Um, 
Effectively, gongos can internally pressure the government, whereas NGOs can internally, but for the most part, they're more external because they're more, more at arm's length. Um, they both have similar epistemic understanding to provide specialized information. Uh, legitimacy is derived from uh, goals to, to pursue the common good. Similar for gongos, except for the caveat of the closeness to the government. Um, NGOs can assist in implementing decisions by acting as an external monitoring agency. And uh, for gongos, they can monitor it internally. So major variances. I'm going through this really quick because I'm going to run out of time. But have a look at the paper if you're really interested in that stuff. Um, here we see different types of gongos. So it matters where they got born. So for instance, we have gongos who started off as independent NGOs. Then they became gongos. Then we have gongos who started off as, as, as government agencies. And then they became uh, gongos. Then they became NGOs. So different evolutionary paths, so to speak. Now, the reason why that's so important for us is this. Gongos are, are so there's consultative status in most international organizations for social organizations. On the Chinese side, gongos are taking on that role. And so for, from an international affairs perspective, um, it becomes very interesting because are the gongos representing civil society? Are they representing government? Are you representing a hybridity of both? Um, so it's really interesting from that standpoint. But again, bringing back to the first principles, the most rudimentary level, most people don't actually know what a gongo is. They don't realize that these are not NGOs, these are gongos. Um, even in international organizations where they have consultative status. Um, and in fact, the most NGOs that are going overseas, save for the environmental ones at this stage, are gongos. So when we went to uh, Southeast Asia and Africa, um, we saw that Chinese gongos effectively are increasingly going overseas. Um, they're even coming to Canada. <laughs> There's the uh, China Friendship Association. There's the Beijing Friendship Association. And they're everywhere. Um, they, they, they inclusive of Canada. Um, but I'm going to focus on, on, the East, on the Southeast Asia and Africa cases. Um, so as I mentioned, the majority of, of Chinese social organizations going overseas are gongos. And from the state's perspective, Chinese NGOs facilitate friendly relations and soften China's international image. Um, what was really interesting was as follows, and, and you might imagine, and in, in, in two papers we looked at uh, how do they actually get to, like how in the world is a Chinese NGO getting to Ethiopia? So we tried to figure that out. What was really interesting was that Chinese NGOs, or gongos in particular, um, were not path uh, or trailblazers. Um, they basically were following where SOEs were going, state-owned enterprises were going. So they were, they were following where, where, where business interests were going and commercial interests were going. So in Ethiopia, there was a, there's a few SOEs there, um, and they want to do corporate social responsibility. They had no in-house capacity to do corporate social responsibility. And so effectively, what you saw was, was, well, we have Chinese gongos. They're able to do some of the work that we want them to do. Let's, let's work with them. And I mean, from a fieldwork standpoint, it took us, we knew the gongos were there. We just couldn't find them. And we ended up finding them in corporate headquarters, I mean, in corporate offices uh, in, in the countries we were in. So we went to Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, uh, Sudan, and uh, Tanzania. And we were able to find Chinese gongos there in those countries, operating there. And again, they were, they were initially, they, they got to the ground because the SOEs invited them to do corporate social responsibility. 
Um, another type of gong, another type of, uh, of, of Chinese NGO's presence might be in medical, medical sort of services. So you might find that uh, the NGO might contract or might encourage uh, hospitals or uh, hospital staff members in, say, Beijing to come to Tanzania. So that's another example of that. Uh, what's really interesting about this is, is, is three things. First thing is, very little to no one knows the Chinese NGOs are actually in their host jurisdiction. So I'm going back to my experience with USAID. You would know it's a USAID project because there'd be a massive sign that says funded by USAID, funded by USAID. You cannot not know it was the US was here when you're looking at development projects. The Chinese didn't do that. So it was kind of hard for the, in terms of a branding standpoint, um, it's difficult to say you're gonna try and soften China's international image and create friendlier relations when the local population does not actually know you're there. Second, we found that um, most of these projects, in fact, all of the projects were short term. There's no immediate permanent presence. There are one-off projects and they were short term. In those three jurisdictions in Africa I was mentioning, when we did find Chinese NGOs and gongos and had a presence there, they weren't there permanently. And that's, and that's interesting because that suggests that, uh, um, you know, theoretically we were thinking, okay, if you're a Chinese NGO, you were born and socialized in an, in an advanced authoritarian institutional environment, what happens when you go to Ethiopia, now maybe semi-authoritarian, Tanzania, this is parliamentarian, or Zimbabwe, which is fully authoritarian, uh, would that change your interactions? So we're looking at it from a theoretical standpoint and practical. It didn't matter which regime type it went to. And we thought, well, maybe it would learn. Maybe it would learn by going overseas. Uh, if it goes to Ethiopia, if it goes to Tanzania, if it goes to Zimbabwe, uh, and I, I didn't mention Southeast Asia here, but we also looked at Vietnam and Cambodia and Myanmar or Burma, depending on your, your country of, of origin. Uh, um, it didn't matter. It did not matter at all in terms of regime type. And they didn't, there was no learning that was going on that was coming back to China. So we thought, huh, that's interesting, because we would think if you have operations overseas, you would take the lessons learned there and bring it back. We didn't see that. So partially the reason might be it's because it's one-off, short-term projects. Partially because it's government-to-government -government linkages. They're following SOEs, or they're following the government saying, maybe you want to uh, operate in this particular area. Um, and uh, as, I, as, I, as I said, uh, uh, it didn't matter in terms of the regime type, but political systems did matter. Insofar, you found that uh, you would think it'd be easier for the Chinese NGO to operate in Zimbabwe because it's similar kinds of institutional environments uh, or, in, or even less, or even, even similarly to Ethiopia. But you found that there was major variances, major problems still. So the, the political systems domestically did play a barrier as well. So we have uh, two papers which look at uh, Chinese NGOs going out to Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, I'll show you the citations at the end. So effectively what we've seen is the sort of uh, the story I've been telling is how NGOs have grown and matured from in the last 15 years or so to present day. Now I want to look forward. In our current project, uh, we're looking at uh, there's something called the social credit system coming online uh, next year, and uh, we've been doing polls. We, we'll see how long we can do those polls for and surveys for. But at the very moment, we are still able to do surveys, um, and what we're trying to figure out is well to be a good citizen in China. One of those components, one of the four components is volunteering. So it'd be interesting, right? Does this mean um, we're, gonna, we're gonna have more volunteers working with NGOs? Now, 
from a theoretical standpoint, we, we, we suspect that it might be different. Because the last 15 years or so of what I've been describing, this is citizen-led, for the most part, volunteering. Now, the state's going to have a major role in terms of giving you points for volunteering. So you're going to have more state-led volunteering. So this is going to change potentially on the next couple of years, how NGOs behave domestically. And why that's important is because as they professionalize more, as they scale up more, and they're going to go overseas more, um, as I mentioned, it's only the environmental NGOs who are going overseas that are independent NGOs, so to speak. Um, as they scale up further, how would this type of, how would the social credit system where it, where, where it rewards citizens for volunteering, how would that influence the, behave, the domestic behavior of NGOs? And, and, and conversely, how would it influence their, their internationalization strategies? Does that mean we're going to see more and more volunteers? It's going to be like a Peace Corps system, perhaps, um, that, that goes globally. Um, so that's something to think about as, as we see China uh, matures in, in the NGO sector, so to speak. Um, as I mentioned, here's some of the recent notes, but uh, um, you can see some of the papers if you're interested there. Um, so that's effectively the sort of story to be told at this stage in terms of NGOs maturation uh, and, their, and them going overseas. Um, the last bit I want to mention is about the overseas aspects. Uh, for the most part, as I said, one-off projects, short-term, but that's going to change. That's definitely going to change. Um, there's one environmental NGO that's now in Cambodia and it's now been there for six years. Um, and now it's going to Vietnam and it's going to set up a permanent office there. What will be really interesting to see is how they start influencing. Um, I'll end off by saying this story and I'll go back to Ethiopia. So we're, we're interviewing these local NGOs, uh, local Ethiopian NGOs. And we, we were saying, well, have you interacted with the Chinese in any form? They're like, the Chinese are here? It's like, yeah, they're here. Um, and, and then they said, well, huh, that's interesting. Um, and a couple of months later, we went back to so a few of them, and he started interacting with the Chinese NGOs who gave them unrestricted money. Um, there's, no, there's no caveats where it's funding. And what was really interesting is that those, those, those local NGOs also went to the Western agencies and said, huh, the Chinese are giving us this, what can you do? So it was kind of interesting to see how they were playing them off. Um, so it was an interesting way to show how there is, there is some practical sort of implications for Chinese NGOs and gongos going overseas. And, and something, a story such as that can illustrate it very vividly. So that's my story to tell you, and I look forward to Q&As. Thank you.